different ideas about uh, how the judgments work. Are they just one right after the other, or do they, you know, overlap one another? And, and as we discussed, there's, there's definitely at least some overlap. That seems fairly obvious, but uh, it's kind of hard for anybody to really know for sure exactly the way, it, you know, it all lays out. Um, but today we're going to look at, at, you know, kind of the end of the, uh, the bowls of God's wrath, and that will set us up then next week for chapter, uh, well, it'll set up the events of chapter 17. We are going to take a, a few weeks and go in a little bit different direction. We're going to go back into the Old Testament, uh, and we're going to look at the passages in, Eze- in Ezekiel chapter uh, 38 and 39, dealing with Gog and Magog. Um, it's a very pertinent passage to where we're at, and so we're going to take a look at that next week, uh, and probably two weeks. It's probably going to take two weeks to do all of that. So that'll give you guys uh, kind of a, you know, a little bit of an idea of, of what's coming, okay? All right, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 17 through 21 today. I want to begin by reading that, and then we'll just go and and kind of take one verse at a time and and work through one verse at a time, okay? All right, let's look at uh, Revelation 16, 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the full cup, or the cup filled with the wine of his fury, uh, of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. All right, that's the ending of the bold judgments. Now let's kind of take these things one thing at a time here on the seventh bowl. Uh, Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And that's the first thing that we notice is, is this bowl is not poured out on the waters, it's not poured out on the lands or a particular people or city, it's poured out into the air. Now, what does that mean? Well, the most likely thing is it just stresses the kind of the universal nature of this. It will be worldwide, and we will see that as we work through things. Uh, it's poured in, out into the air, which kind of stresses that, that, you know, that ability to go around the world. And so this is going to affect literally the entire world, not you know, as we worked through these, we saw like one on the river Euphrates, we saw, you know, on the kingdom of the beast, we saw all these, these kind of individual places or things. But now we see a bowl that's, that's going to be worldwide. Um, in some ways, it's funny, it made me think almost of like, a, like an airborne plague, though it's, it's a plague of a very different kind. No, it's not sickness of individuals, it's hailstones and, and earthquakes and and, you know, disruptions, essentially the world is coming apart at this point. Um, the, the, the world that God created and that man ruined through our sin, that, that Satan motivated man to, to ruin, now God's judgment comes upon Satan and man. Uh, and this, this world that was, you know, God's creation that has been so corrupted is, is now literally coming apart, uh, you know, and so, you know, you're going to see some incredible things here uh, in these five verses, you know, so uh, things that are really hard to wrap, wrap our heads around, you know, I, I mean, I'll just throw this out there in advance, we'll get there toward, toward the end this morning, but 100-pound hailstones, I, I'm telling you folks, that's like, you know, just try to wrap your mind around 100-pound hailstones. You know, I'll read some things to you, you know, later on about the size of the biggest hailstones ever recorded, and you guys will be astonished. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, some pretty amazing stuff that comes from this plague, from this, this bowl of God's wrath, and it's, 
it's worldwide, okay? It, 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 will, it will be all over the world. Another interesting thing about this, with the attack on the air, essentially we see an attack of all four of the elements that were known in Greek science. Now, Greek science obviously is very different than, than our concept of science. But in Greek science, the, the, the science of the ancient day, of the ancient world, how they would have viewed the world from their idea of, of, of scientific inquiry, the way they would have viewed the world, there were four elements. There was earth, water, fire, and air, or wind. We have seen now literally a, a, a plague that has attacked every one of those things, or attacked with every one of those things. Again, we, we always talk about this, but, but you can never stop like reminding yourself self of this. When you are studying the Bible, when you're trying to interpret the Bible, your first goal is to try to, as much as possible, go back into their world because it was written to them. They are the initial audience, and so that is where your interpretation comes from. What did it mean to the, to the first audience that, that God wrote this to? Then we try to take that back in, in what some uh, commentaries call bridging the context. We try to take the context of the ancient world, bridge it over into our world, and, and, and say, how can we now apply that understanding in our contemporary world, okay? So that's always what you're trying to do. It's always what you should be trying to do. That's why we get so many crazy, goofy interpretations a lot of times, because people don't delve into what it would have meant to the original audience. Now think about this. The way the people of this day would have seen their world, would have understood their world, the way the best minds of their day would have told them their world was constituted, it doesn't matter if that's not accurate. It's how they would have you know, perceived it. God has essentially taken their concept of how the world is, and he's destroying it. He, he's attacking every part of it. And, and that's, the, that's kind of the point, that you know, mankind has so corrupted the world God made. You know, we, we work through our mindset of how we perceive things and, and you know, through a, a, an ungodly and an unbiblical way of looking at things. And God is destroying that right before the face of all of, of all these people. You know, they have attacked God. They have turned away from him. They, you know, his gracious and merciful offers of forgiveness, they've thumbed their nose at. And finally God said, okay, it's time. It's time to, you know, to bring this to an end. It's time to bring judgment to all of this. And before them, he is attacking their very understanding of how everything is, is put together. So it's an interesting thing. We're going to see here a little later, he, he is also in this attacking, you know, the, the, the concept of, of the other gods that people have, just like he did in Egypt. And, and we'll, like I said, we'll talk about that more here in a minute. <coughs> now we see here um, in verse 17, it says, out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne. Now that's an interesting um, line because we have seen voices coming uh, from heaven from numerous places uh, let me read something to you from uh, the the baker exegetical commentary by grant osborne about this particular um, phrase it says at the outset another loud voice from the temple announces the completion of the divine plan but here the voice for the first time comes also from the throne. The only other times a voice proceeds from the throne is in chapter 19, verse 5, which we'll get to, you know, down the road here a little bit. Uh, that's in the midst of, of like the hallelujah choruses proclaiming the eschaton, the end of, end of time. Um, and chapter 21, verse 3, proclaiming the meaning of the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so this is the first example out of three in the book of Revelation where we see this 
you know, particular wording used, all right? So it's, it's, it's the first time we see it. This is the only place in the book that the three, temple, heaven, and throne, are juxtaposed. So this is an extreme eschatological moment when all the forces of the divine end, uh, uh, divine end of history are brought together. It is difficult to choose between God and Christ as the voice itself, though as in uh, chapter 16, verse 1, there is a possible connection to Isaiah 66, uh, 6, uh, where the people are told uh, to, to hear the voice from the temple, a voice from the Lord uh, repaying the, uh, all his enemies, uh, all they deserve, which favors God as the voice. So we don't know if the voice coming from the throne is God or is Christ, but, but like you said, there's some, some Old Testament passages that seem to possibly point to this same passage, Isaiah 66, 6. That, that's its reference in the Septuagint. It might be a little different in some you know, different translations. But, um, you know, that is a possible link here. And so if that is a link, then the voice is probably God speaking from the throne. Okay. And so, um, you know, it's, this is an extraordinary moment is kind of the point. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, all of the, kind of the force of heaven is combined here to speak this one moment to say, this is the end. I, I'm bringing this to a close. You know, uh, you know, all the all of history, in a way, has pointed to this moment, and now it's here, and, and it's it's done. It, it 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 is done, or it is finished. Um, and we'll look. You know, I want to really look at that phrase because that in itself is is fascinating, and it and it's filled with all kinds of interesting context. Again, let me read something about that phrase. Um, from the New American Commentary. Um, so this, this, this phrase, it, it is done, you know, uh, he, he said, it is a translation of, of gegonen, the perfect uh, tense of genomai, which stresses the fact that something has been done with effects that linger into the future. So this, what has happened here is not just like, okay, it's now and it's done. It is now, and it will continue to carry forth on into the future. What is done now will have a, a, a lasting effect, okay? So in other words, when it says it is done, it's not just saying like, you know, okay, I ate the last, you know, peach in the bowl. It's done. Let's go out and buy some more peaches. That's not what we're talking about. It's, there's no more peaches. You know, that's the point. It, it's, it's done, all right? He continues to say... Uh, verification of this comes in terms of, of flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake of such severity that the author states no earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the, was the quake. Uh, in other, other words, he accompanies the uh, importance of this moment with you know, these amazing things to kind of show, hey, this is, this is a big deal, you know? And we'll talk more about, uh, you know, that earthquake and everything, uh, you know, later on as we, as we get closer to it. <coughs> I want you to turn back, just briefly, to chapter 11. I want to look at verses 15 through 19 um, and, and just, you know, throw uh, the thought out there that some scholars have. And we, again, we've talked about is there some overlap uh, in these passages, uh, and, and, and we're going to look here at the seventh trumpet, uh, and many belie people believe that the seventh trumpet essentially also contained the seven bowls. Uh, and, and so here's something that, that uh, and again, I, I don't like to try to be too dogmatic on this. A lot, of, a lot of people try to be, oh yeah, this is the way it absolutely is, but there's really not enough proof most of the time to say, yep, this is, this is the way it is. Um, you know, we, we get a little bit too arrogant, I think, sometimes with end times things, and it's just not as clear as what we'd, we'd like to think it is. Um, that's why there's so many opinions on it, you know, because it's just not as clear. But here is, is something that may give some, uh, you know, some possible impetus to that idea. I want you to notice, notice some of the similarities uh, between the seventh trumpet uh, and what we are going to see here in, in the pouring out of the seventh bowl. 
Um, and instead of reading the whole passage, just to kind of save ourselves a little time, let me read verse 15. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a, uh, loud voices in heaven, which said, The kingdom of the world has, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So in other words, you know, hey, this is, this is done now. This is, this is happening, okay? doesn't use that same phrase, it is done, but he does say the kingdom of, uh, you know, of, of, of the earth has become, has become the Lord's. If you jump down into verse 19, you really see the similarities. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within the temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Sound pretty familiar? Pretty much everything that we are seeing in, in bowl seven. Okay, now the, the magnitude, the description of the magnitude is much greater in bowl seven, but some scholars believe that essentially these are, are, the, are, are picturing the same event, which is possible. Uh, you know, again, we, I, I don't think we can be dogmatic about it, but it's certainly possible because you see enough of the, of the parallels that are going on here. Now, I think one of the, the most interesting things, something that uh, Grant Osborne brought out in, in his commentary, and I really love this thought, it, it's, you know, another important thing when we study the Bible is to think biblically, think the whole Bible, bring to bear, you know, the Bible as a whole and not just focus on like particular individual verses, which is what we like to do a lot of times. We, we love to proof text, but the problem with proof texting can, can be that sometimes you take that text out of context. You lift it out of the page, lift it out of its surroundings, and, and sometimes we get, get it wrong. Now, we don't always do that, and proof texting's fine as long as you do your homework, you know, and put it into proper understanding, proper context. But one of the things that I think makes Bible study powerful is when we kind of can bring to bear a lot of the other things that the Bible says. Now, I want you to think about this phrase, it, it is done, or it is, is finished. Um, I'm going to turn back to John chapter 19, verse 30, and this is Jesus on the cross, and you guys are all, you know, you've all heard this, you've all, you know, are familiar with this verse, it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, when we think of that, we are so laser focused on that moment of his passion and, and, and of his death for the, the sins of the world. I mean, that's, that's what we're thinking about, and that's, you know, that is what's going on, and we should be thinking about that. But, you know, that has ramifications that go so much further than the moment. In, in, in many ways, uh, a lot of, of uh, you know, theologians see that the Christ's uh, victory on the cross is really the victory of, of all victories, the victory of all time. It it leads to every victory there is, that, that that was the moment that Satan was truly defeated. You know, and, and of course, coupling that with the resurrection, the, you know, the entire passion, the death on the cross and the resurrection, uh, it truly is finished. You know, with, with, with the day that, that, that God brought Jesus out of the grave and essentially said, I've accepted that sacrifice, game over. Now, now, you know, this is one of the strange things about it is we're still down on, you know, I, I read this quote recently, it says, you know, we're still down here in the field trying to figure out which jersey we want to put on. But the reality is the game's over. You know, it's just going to be played out day by day by day, but the, the outcome has already been determined the day Jesus came out of that grave, the day he shed his blood and his body was broken for us. And then three days later, he came out of that grave. Game over. You know, and so you see that kind of interesting linguistic connection here where Jesus says it is finished, and now you have possibly Jesus himself, possibly God the Father from the throne saying it is finished, it is done. Game over. You know, so, so the, the events that were put into motion with Jesus' death on the cross are now being brought to their ultimate fulfillment in the last of these plagues and in the final judgment of the world. So it, it, it's, it's an interesting thought, and I thought it was, was really a, a, a brilliant thought. It, 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 
it again takes our, our mind out of, uh, you know, kind of that initial little place it's at and makes it think in a, in a more holistically biblical way that there's more going on here than just like that one little thing. Yeah, yeah, we saw that back in chapter 11. Yeah, I mean, and technically it was finished, you know, already, um, but you are right. I mean, there's no more need, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, once, people have always wondered, like, where is the ark? That's one of the great, I mean, heck, they've made movies, made movies about it, Uh but uh, the, the reality is, yes, there's no more need for the ark. You know, the, the ark was the place that God, it was kind of the symbol of God's indwelling with his people. You know, the, the place that God came to meet Israel, came to meet his people, and that's no longer necessary. You know, uh, the, the reality is that since Christ, God meets us within us. You know, we, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Uh, and, and God's meeting place is with each individual person uh, who has been regenerated and, and with, you know, within who the Holy Spirit dwells. Uh, and so you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, there, there's no more need. Uh, and so it's in heaven. We don't know when it got there. We don't know how it got there. But God doesn't share that little detail with us. But like I, I mentioned back you know, a number of weeks ago, it's not in a warehouse in Washington, D.C., folks. You know, Indy got that one wrong. So, yeah, that's that. It's in Arizona. Yeah, it's in New Mexico out there. <laughs> but uh, you know, yeah, it's a, it's it's a great point. I, I mean, there's a lot of things when it is that phrase. It is finished. Literally, I mean, it, it it encompasses a great many things. You know, uh, the world is truly, truly changing and and coming to an end of what it was before. Now let's look at verse 18. It says, then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever, uh, uh, ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. Now, this earthquake, let's start with the, with the earthquake itself. <coughs> there are numerous ways that, that New Testament scholars, you know, kind of look at this and refer to this some refer to this as what's called a cosmic storm or of or a storm theophany now what does all that mean basically um i want you guys to to think back in your mind to the exodus uh and the journey of israel out of egypt when god's shekinah glory is traveling with you know, with the, the Israelites leading them through the desert. And, you know, he, he is a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of, of smoke by day. But when they come to, 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 to Sinai, and it comes time to encamp around it, and Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments. And if you guys can't remember this, like, from the Bible, just think the Ten Commandments if you've ever seen it. Just, you know, use the visual. Uh, you know, Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Now, one thing that they did not have the ability to do in the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, they didn't have CGI back when that was made in 1956. Um, they couldn't show the enormity of what was going on on that mountain. But when you read it, it's very similar to this. And the presence of God descending on that mountain in essentially the form of a storm and the rumblings and the lightning and 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 you know everything that was happened and if you guys remember that story how frightened israel was how scared they were you know and, and they, they 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 said to moses you go up there we don't want anything to do with that yeah you know we we, we don't i mean Essentially, we don't, we don't even want to hear that. Any, you know, that it, it was so frightening, so tremendous what was happening on the mountain that it scared Israel. And, and the prophecy of, of a, uh, a prophet like Moses kind of came forth from that where God told Moses, they, they, it, it's right for them 
to be frightened. They should be frightened. You know, but I will one day send a prophet like you, Moses, a prophet that knew God face to face, that, that was called the friend of God. And, and God told Moses from his lips, they will have to listen. If they do not listen to him, then they, they have no chance. And of course, that prophet was Jesus. And we see the early church connect that uh, in, in the book of Acts, that Jesus was that prophet like Moses. You know, he's the one who not only knew God face to face, but was God. And from his lips, they would have to hear the truth. And, and, and you know, that would be the ultimate judgment of mankind. So many scholars connect what we see happening here with that storm theophany of the Old Testament, that this is, is very similar, that what God is sending on the earth right now is God, you know, kind of uh, his power is, is descending upon the earth to do judgment on the earth, that this is a cosmic storm or, or you know, storm theophany. This is the power of God uh, descending upon the earth in order to to bring about this final judgment. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. When we start thinking of things in that way and making those connections with what we see in Old Testament times and then, you know, going on into the future here, um, you know, it's a pretty amazing, uh, you know, visual that we get. I, I want to just briefly read something to you about, about this that I, I think is interesting. We're going to spend some time looking at, um, at both of these commentaries today because I think they've, they make some really interesting points. This is just a short, a short point about this, but uh, it says, this is the last of four passages that allude to the cosmic storm, flashes of lightning, the roar of the storm, and peals of thunder based in the Sinai phenomenon, with the final three having the earthquake and the final two also relating hail, the hailstorm. This is the most extensive coverage of the four and seems to sum up the others. So this is the fourth time that we see it in the book of Revelation, this same kind of wording here. Each time, you know, uh, kind of includes certain parts of it, with the last two also including the hailstorm, but this last one is the most in-depth of, of them all, so it probably sums up all of that, you know, that, that whole idea of, of this, uh, this, this storm theophany. So I, I thought that was, you know, pretty interesting. Now, now, another thing that we see here is the greatness of the earthquake. You know, it, it, we're, we're told that this is unlike any earthquake that's ever existed. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. There have been some tremendous earthquakes in the history of the world. And, and you know, we get a, a verse or two further here. We're going to, you know, talk a little bit about one of them. Um, but just as, as a reference, how many of you, uh, and I know some of you <laughs> might not even have been alive when this happened, which is making me feel really old all of a sudden. Um, how many of you remember back uh, into the early 1990s when the San Francisco earthquake happened? I, I will never forget it because I was watching the World Series, uh, which is taking place between San Francisco and Oakland which if you guys know anything about geography, are just separated by a, by a, a, a body of water. Uh, they're they're kind of neighbor cities, uh, you know, and, and if you guys remember the, 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 the views of, of what happened to those cities during that earthquake, you know, the, the damaged bridges and, the, and the, the, you know, the, the, the streets that were uplifted and the, and the buildings that collapsed and and, you know, uh, just you know, traffic just, you know, twisted and in a rubble, you know, and, and, and that, that was a big earthquake, but that was nowhere near the, the biggest earthquake that the world has ever seen. And the biggest earthquake the world has ever seen is nowhere near the earthquake that the world will see at this point. And that's kind of the point. You know, uh, the, the most memorable ones that we can imagine that we can see in our mind pale in comparison to what this is talking about. You know, so it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Again, let me read a brief note from Dr. Osborne. The description of it as greater than any that, that had ever happened since people were on the earth is reminiscent of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus spoke of the days of the tribulation as unequaled from the beginning 
when God created the world. Both go back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, which describes a tribulation such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. So this is a consistent theme that we see throughout history, that there is a judgment that is coming one day, uh, goes the whole way back to Daniel and includes the words of Jesus himself. There's a judgment coming one day that will be unprecedented. The world has never seen anything like it will see when God's final judgment comes upon the earth. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, it, it is done, it is finished, he's saying. He's bringing to bear that final moment, final moments of judgment. So this is an earthquake unlike any that has ever been seen. Look at verse 19. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Right. First, the great city. What is the great city a reference to? Now, there is no agreement on this. <laughs> there, there are a, a, at least three distinct possibilities. One is the, the actual uh, historical Babylon. Uh, you know, uh, when we think of Babylon, you know, the, the kingdom of Babylon, I rebuilt Babylon there. That is one possibility. And we talked a little bit about this weeks ago. Um, that's very popular with a lot of scholars. Um, well, it's very popular with a lot of people who write books but are not necessarily New Testament scholars. Not nearly so popular with New Testament scholars. Uh, I'll just you know, throw that out there. Uh, most of them do not see the ancient Babylon as, as the most likely place. People generally tend to look at either Jerusalem, which is often called the great city in the Bible, and we've seen it even in the book of Revelation. Uh, it, it is oftentimes associated with good connotations, but sometimes with negative. As remember, you know, there's been the rejection of Christ there also. And so, you know, both its holiness and its wickedness are pointed out, you know, in Scripture. And so uh, some people believe the great city here is a reference to Jerusalem. Other people believe that it is a reference to uh, Rome, that that is how the ancient world of this day would have seen it. They, they saw the ancient Roman Empire as essentially um, a new Babylon. And they even referred to it that way. Like the Christians of this era that, that this was written to, that's how they saw, that's how a lot of them saw Rome. You know, the wickedness of Rome, the, the, the persecutions that Rome brought to bear upon Christians. That's kind of how they viewed Rome. This is like Babylon all over again. And so many New Testament scholars point to that. As, they even call it Babylon on the Tiber, is, is what many call it. That's the, the river that goes by Rome. Uh, so those are the three options. Like I told you before, I, again, I don't think we can be real dogmatic about this. Personally, I lean a little bit toward Jerusalem, but I don't lean very far, kind of like maybe that, <laughs> you know, because I, there's really good arguments for both Babylon on the Tiber, Rome, and Jerusalem. Both make a, a lot of sense. Um, these two scholars are very eminent New Testament scholars, um, and, and they have two completely different views on it. One is Jerusalem, one is, is, is Rome. You know, I mean, these are great, conservative, tremendous, you know, Greek scholars, and they view it two completely different ways. So we don't know, but I think here, Jerusalem makes, this is just me, and I'm not a Greek scholar, I just read Greek scholars, you know, I think, you know, that Jerusalem makes a little bit more sense, but I think it could go either way. So wherever it is at, whichever the city is being talked about, um, you know, this is, is a, a horrible thing that, that happened. It's, well, it's horrible for them, but it's the judgment of God. It, it is a righteous thing that is happening here, it, but it is unprecedented. Um, it says the city is split into three parts, which 
pretty much you know all scholars should you know stress the the enormity of that the uh, the idea of a city being split into three parts is kind of the idea of total destruction it, it, it's you know think of something you know you know an earthquake would hit carlisle and carlisle literally just the ground splits open in three different places and you know what would be left of of the town and that's kind of the picture uh you know there's really not a whole lot not a whole lot left um now there's an interesting reference in Zechariah 14 verses 1 through 5 there's no agreement on whether this is a reference to this or not some people think that this moment comes just a little while later where other people believe that this is kind of a uh, you know this this is it's kind of all encompassed together let's put it that way um, verses 1 through 5 of, of Zechariah 14 it says day is coming a day, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Remember, we saw that just earlier in the passage. We talked about the gathering of the armies to Armageddon. Um, the city will be captured and houses ransacked. The women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to, to Azel. Uh, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my, uh, my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Now, like I said, there's no agreement on whether this is talking about this same instance or not. Some believe it is. Some believe it, it, is, a, uh, it is referring back to this, uh, you know, because we've already seen Christ come, saying in these, bold, in these bold judgments, he's gathering the armies together to do battle, so we know he's about to come. Uh, and so is this a separate earthquake from the one that will happen when he sets foot on the land? Or is the language here encompassing all of these end-time events? That's the question. And so depending on how the scholar takes that depends on, on usually how they, they view whether Zechariah is being referenced here. The interesting thing about Zechariah is, is, you know, some of it is very similar. God has gathered the armies of the Antichrist together to do battle uh, they are, they, you know, we see them about to come upon Israel, and God says, when they do, all these terrible things are going to happen, but in the midst of that all, I'm going to come and set foot on the Mount of Olives, and when that happens, the Mount of Olives will split down through the middle and create a valley, and the people that are left in Israel will escape the conflagration through that valley. So some believe that that's one of, you know, the, the three parts that are split, one of them is going to be when Jesus sets foot on the Mount of Olives, uh, you know, and, and this happens. Now, again, I, you know, I don't think we can say yay or nay on this with any kind of certainty. It's just a very interesting, um, you know, connection here, possible connection. The, some of the, the, the descriptions are very strikingly familiar, okay? But the interesting thing about it is God creates a way for his people to escape which is, you know, is really cool. And I think it's really cool God says, I will come back and fight like a warrior on the day of battle. And we've talked about this before, but that is a very, very familiar Old Testament motif. Uh, one legendary Hebrew scholar, Tremper Longman, even wrote a, a book called God is a Warrior based upon that motif that is all throughout the, the Old Testament. Uh, God as the one who is the warrior of, for Israel, who fights their battles. Uh, and then, we, of course, that's taken then on into the New Testament of God as a warrior for his people, the church. Uh, you know, and so um, just throwing that out there as, as, as a possibility. Obviously, the scope of this is, is vast, um, a vast earthquake. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it as we move down into verses twenty. And 21 so we'll save that part of the discussion for them for that um, it's interesting here that it uses this phrase 
that God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. God remembered. That's a, a, it's always a fascinating phrase. Um, what does it mean when God remembers? Does it mean God forgot? Is that even possible? Or does it just mean that God does not bring it to the forefront of his, of his mind, of his, of his calendar of things? And I think that is really what it means. I don't think it's possible for an all-knowing God to forget anything. Even when the Bible says that he casts our sins away as far as the east is from the west, that he, what's it say? He remembers them no more. It doesn't literally mean that God can forget anything. It means he doesn't bring it up. He, do, he doesn't rehearse it. He, does, he, you know, he doesn't count it against us anymore. You know? And that's how forgiveness is supposed to work. You know, is we don't rehearse wrongs done. Yeah, and that's how God does for us. And, and so that's really more what it's talking about. It's not necessarily saying, well, you know, God's really old, so he forgot. And then these angels had to come and say, oh, hey, God, you remember? Remember, you know, Babylon the Great? Oh, yeah, I forgot that. That's not the picture. You know, the, the picture is that Babylon the Great has done these things, and God knows it, and he's biding his time till his moment of judgment is, is perfect and right and fits his plan, and then he brings it to the front of his mind, the front of his calendar, and says, now I will take action. It's right. It's like when Christ came, you know, what's the Bible say? At, at, at the right moment, at just the right moment in time. See, God knew exactly when he wanted to do that. He knew just the right moment. What fit his plan? And that is what we're seeing here. So, so don't worry that God is forgetting things. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that the moment is now right for God to act on this. He remembers it, brings it to the forefront of his calendar of, of things. And, and, and he now will, will essentially bring judgment upon Babylon the Great. Now we discussed Babylon the Great a little earlier, but let me just, you know, again, read a, a note, kind of bring us back on online, whoops, wrong one, uh, a little bit about what we're talking about with Babylon the Great. It says, once again, the discussion of the identity of Babylon is before the interpreter, and once again, the geographical reference is most likely to Babylon on the Tiber. Again, we, we see, you know, the, the possibility of Babylon as being centered in Rome. Um, or the reconstituted form of the last day Roman Empire. So those are usually the two different thoughts on what is Babylon the Great. Either, you know, a reconstituted Roman Empire at the end of, of, of time, or, you know, Babylon on the Tiber. Uh, kind of a reference back to ancient Rome. Now, he does an interesting thing here, which I, I thought really has a lot of, Merit, and I think the Bible works like this far more often than what we, we realize. He says, uh, however, it is not unrelated to Babylon on the Euphrates, since the religion and the morality spawned from Babylon on the Euphrates becomes incorporated in the Babylon on the Tiber of John's day and the final expression of a world empire in the last day. Which is absolutely true. That's why the the the... Christians of the day saw Rome as like Babylon because they had taken so many of the same kind of anti-God concepts of, of Babylon in the ancient world and brought them into the world of Rome. And that's why, you know, modern scholars who see a reconstituted kind of Roman empire modeled on Babylon view it the way they do. So the position that Dr. Patterson is essentially taking is that in, in a way all three are correct. And it doesn't really matter so much the specific identification here is the fact that this is, a, you know, this is kind of the way that Satan has worked throughout human history, and we've seen its forms, kind of, kind of three great forms in, in human history. Babylon, Rome, and now the government of the Antichrist at the end of the world. So really, I think it's a very good point. Um... 
The last phrase here in this verse that, that I want to look at is, is uh, this phrase of the cup of the wine of, of God's wrath or of his fury. Some of you may have that. Again, we discussed this back a few weeks ago, but um, wine is an interesting thing that is pictured in the Bible. Um, most often, it is pictured in a celebratory way or a way of blessing. Wine was always seen by Israel as a blessing from God. Uh, you know, it, it was a sign of, of God's grace to them and of God's kindness to them, of God's provision, okay? But there are also times where wine is used as the, the concept for wrath. Uh, and you'll see a phrase very similar to this, the, the cup of God's wrath or or the, the, the wine of God's fury, or, you know, those, those phrases show up both in Old and New Testament. And, and so it, it's, it's the cons, it, they're, they're not contradictory. These two different things are not contradictory. One kind of stems from the other. It's the idea of wine as what is normally a blessing from God, now turning into a curse. Something that God has given, uh, you know, as a sign of his love and kindness and of his blessing, and now he, you know, in his anger, in his fury, in his righteousness, he turns what normally would be his blessing to people into, you are now going to drink essentially the dregs of my anger. Now, there's probably not a lot of wine drinkers in here, but I know there's some coffee drinkers. What's it like, you know, some of you just love coffee. I know some of you do. I got one person in here particularly in mind. I know, I actually got a couple people in here I know who just love coffee. Now, I'm not particularly a coffee drinker. I've just never acquired it. Um, I, I, you know, I've often wished I liked coffee because it seems like a wonderful morning kind of ritual. It'd be kind of nice and smells delicious. I think it tastes horrible. That's just me. Um, but for those of you who like it, you love it. What's it like, though, to drink the ground? Oh, man. The, I, I see the coffee drinkers I know in here who, who just love coffee. They're just going, yeah, it, that's the picture. That's the idea. How something that is such a joy for you, a part of your every morning ritual that you look forward to. Man, I know some of you guys, I've been in hunting camp with some of you. I know, man, that coffee better be brewing. It's set the night before, ready to go in the morning. So that's the first thing that, that happens in the morning. But when that turns into something that's nasty and bitter and tasteless, well, not tasteless, awful tasting, that's the picture. That in the Bible, wine, you know, that is seen so often in kind of the way we see coffee in the modern world as, man, it's, it's just this blessing. It's this, this wonderful, comforting thing. It's a sign of God's love. But it can also very quickly turn into something bitter and foul and nasty. That's the, that's the picture. And, and God is saying to Satan and to the Antichrist and to the false prophet, and all who follow them, you are about to drink essentially the dregs of the cup. You're going to get the full cup of all the nastiness that I can pour out because I, I cannot stomach your sin any longer. It's time for judgment. Look at verse 20. It says, every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Very short verse, but a very ominous verse. Every, I, just think about this. The islands of the world being destroyed. The, you know, uh, many of the world's greatest mountains disappearing. In case you wonder, can this actually happen? Yes, it can. And it has happened. How many of you have ever heard of one, one of the greatest earthquakes of all time called Krakatoa? Yes, literally that is the name, Krakatoa, as if you stubbed your toe. Raise your hand. Anybody ever hear of Krakatoa? Yeah, good. About half of you. Yeah, Krakatoa was, was an island, uh, in, in, and I believe it was in the South Pacific, uh, and a, a massive earthquake hit and essentially wiped the island away. Uh, 
the, the dust from this earthquake spread basically worldwide, which if, gives you a picture of what's going on here. You know, uh, it, it, people were breathing the dust of Krakatoa the whole way across the world when it happened. That's, again, that's the picture. That, that, that's what we see kind of taking place here is islands and mountains will be destroyed. The, the plates of the earth will move all over the earth and will literally kind of open up and mountains will disappear. Uh, you know, and, and so it's a, man, it's a short verse, but it's, a, it's one packed with, a, with quite a view. That's what the, the world will look like, the, the cataclysm of the world. Again, let me read something to you from the New American Commentary. The effects of this earthquake on islands and mountains alike is memorable. No, uh, not infrequently in earthquakes, islands that were formerly relatively prominent simply disappear as the plates move and the island is submerged beneath the surrounding seas. Mountains, too, can be violently, violently affected. Conceivably, the, the effects of this earthquake are so great as to obliterate some of the great mountains of the world. Now, we don't know necessarily what mountains, but just picture, what, what's the biggest mountain you've ever seen? Any of you ever seen Denali? Not McKinley. More commonly known as McKinley, but Denali's the proper name. It'd be like Denali just being gone. Now, it's it's an amazing thing to think about. Frightening thing to think about. Now, in the last handful of minutes here, let's look at verse 21. It says, from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the, the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Wow. I mean, let's just kind of start right there. Um, plague of hailstones, that's not new. Remember we've talked about all throughout chapter 16 here, the many different connections to the plagues of Egypt. So many of the plagues were the same plagues that God used on, you know, with Egypt. And we see another one, hailstones. You know, hailstones fell on Egypt. And now we see a plague like Egypt's, but of such in enormity that the hailstones are, are in the neighborhood of, of what is translated into English as 100 pounds. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. Um, something that is really... Uh, interesting about this is in Egypt, almost, well, really, all of the plagues of Egypt, not only were a plague by the true God upon Egypt to free his people, but each plague was an attack on one of the Egyptian gods. The, the Egyptians believed in many, many gods, and, and you know, they, they, they would have looked to their gods for salvation from these plagues. And their gods were entirely incapable of doing anything against the plagues. Well, in many ways, that's the same thing we see here. Go back to the beginning of this. What, what brought this all upon the earth? Well, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet and the dragon, who, the Satan who's behind them all, and their one world you know, government and their one world religion and, and, and the false god. And we've seen time and time again God essentially giving the people of the earth a chance to repent and them going, nope, nope, we won't do it. We're going to curse you, God. We're going to blaspheme you. We'll take the Antichrist. And God's like, okay, you have what you want. I, I don't know. It never says. I tell you what, it'd take a long time for these hailstones to disappear just on the sheer size of them. We'll talk more about that in a second. Hold, hold on here in a second. We'll talk about the size of these things. But, you know, in some ways, this, again, is an attack on, on the false gods of the world of this time, just like it was in Egypt. God is basically saying, look, you can choose me or someone else, but you'll pay the price of the choice you make. And, and, and the vast majority of the world chooses another path, and God says, okay, I am going to not only destroy that, but in doing it, I will show you 
the inability of those false gods to do anything to help you. I will show you I'm the true God. They can't do a thing against me. And so you see that happening again here. Now the huge size. Dr. Osborne has a couple interesting notes here on the size of these hailstones, which I, honestly I found pretty amazing. Now let me just point out something as far as like why you may see some differences weight-wise and you'll read different weights by different scholars because our idea of a pound is not the same as, as what ancient, you know, the ancient world during John's time was. A Roman pound or a libre was, was 12 ounces. Our pound is 16. We don't know exactly how much, you know, these weigh. Um, it's just an effort to bring it into English. Um, the word here uh, is, is the, that's used is the word for weighing a talent, and a talent was 125 libre. You know, so 125, you know, it, it, measurements of 12 ounces. So you can do the math, but remember it also says about. So that, you know, you get the idea. We don't really know exactly how big these were, but, you know, basically, you know, scholars who've translated the Bible basically they're about 100 pounds. They're in the neighborhood of 100 pounds. Some have said 100 to 130, uh, others, you know, a little smaller, but, but they're all in the neighborhood of 100 pounds. They're big. They're really, really big. He says, one of my students figured such a hailstone would be 17.6 inches in diameter. Now that's straight through the middle. 17.6, so almost 18 inches. That's like, like that. That's how big, you know, that would be like straight through the middle of this. That's about how much it would take for a hailstone to weigh roughly 100 pounds. That's like basketball size. You know, medicine ball size. That's, I mean, guys, that's like astonishing. I, I, biggest hailstone I've ever seen has probably been about like, like a quarter. Let's get some, you know, little background here. The Guinness Book of World Records in 1997, to give you an idea about when this was, you know, this was written in the early 2000s. Um, the largest hailstones in recorded history were two and a quarter pounds. Now, I just let that sink in. Roughly 100-pound hailstorms compared to two and a quarter pounds is the biggest that were ever on record. Anybody have a guess on where that was? I'll be shocked if you guess it. Bangladesh, of all places. We don't usually think of Bangladesh for hail. But yeah, Bangladesh fell on Bangladesh in April 14, 1986, killing 92 people. A hailstorm killed 92 people. The largest in the U.S. was 1.671 pounds, a diameter of 5.62 inches. So about like that. No comparison. No comparison, the enormity of the size. So I, I, it doesn't really give us a timeline, time Annis, but man, how long would it take to get rid of a chunk of ice the size of a basketball? It'd be around for a while. Oh, I get you. It, it, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, what, whatever it is, let's say even if it's an hour, it's worldwide. Oh, my goodness. I mean, man, can you imagine? Where would you hide? Yeah, there's not going to be much left when this is done. Yeah. yeah. When I remember, this is a miracle. This is not anything that's happening naturally. God is sending this. This is not something that's just going to brew up a storm naturally and happen. This is, this is a storm theophany. It's essentially the, the power and presence of God just raining this down on the earth. You know. It, it says that, that big one in the U.S. fell on Coffeeville, Kansas. That's, I, I would think Kansas. That would be my first thought if I'd think hail. <laughs> you know, um, on September 3rd, 1970. Thus, this is a formidable picture of final judgment. 
there is an understatement right there. This is a formidable picture of final judgment. In Exodus 9, 24, such a hailstorm had, uh, had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Notice even the similarity of the wording. I love how the Bible just dovetails together. It's, only God could do that. This storm is the greatest ever in history. Yes, sir. Oh, I, yeah, I'll bet. I, I, oh, imagine this. Imagine what, I mean, that's just, like, where would you hide? You know. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, half a minute. It, it, it's just staggering to think about. Um, but you know, the saddest thing about all of this is let's just continue to read. You, you know, huge hail, you know, from the sky, huge hailstones weighing about 100 pounds fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. You don't see anybody repenting. Remember we talked about this weeks ago. God kind of, he, he flew an angel all around the earth and basically said, you got one last chance. I'm about to rain down on you. You better make a choice right now. Anybody that made the wrong choice, you're locked into what you did, what, to your choice. So you see no repentance. There's no interest in repenting on the, on the part of any people. It, it's staggering to think about. But, you know, literally the last believers that will ever exist until the millennial kingdom have, have come to faith. And there won't be any more at this point. And God is just raining down his wrath on the earth. And it is a fitting picture of, of the end. Ah, we're out of time. Um, but, you know, again, just uh, the powerlessness of the nature of false gods to do anything against the true God is just driven home by God on the earth. So, you know, people need to repent while there's a chance to repent. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I hope not too, but Yep. Yep. That's that's a great point. Uh and, and it, it that is reality. Um and you know, even uh, let me just throw this out as a kind of a closing shot across the bow. Even amongst Christians, you know, you see sometimes Christians who kind of walk away for a bit and, and they're like, well, I just kind of need a break from church, from God's people. Uh, you know, and I, look, I get that. Sometimes church life can be tough. It can. Trust me, any, every pastor, every elder I've ever known at some time wants to kind of walk away and go, oh, okay, I've, you know, had enough for a while. There's danger in that. And I know we, you know, as pastors and elders have told people that, look, you need a break, take a break, but don't go away too long. Because it's really easy to have your heart become hard and, and feel you don't need God's people anymore. Now, we're not saying you're going to lose your salvation or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, not only can hardening, you know, ha has already happened on the lost, God's people can start to get hardened up a little bit if they get away from the protection that God brings, you know, with his church and with his word. So don't fall into that. It's, it's very easy to, to say, well, I'm just going to stay home for a while. Just be careful. Be careful. Uh, use a phrase that, that Glenn likes to use a lot. Keep short accounts between you and God. You know, keep things confessed, keep close, you know, stay with God's people. 
There's protection here. There's strength here. That's the way God's always meant the body to be. You're not meant to be lone rangers. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you even for these ominous passages that we read today. We're still thankful that you're in charge, and we're thankful that you are just and you are holy. They are overwhelming to us. They're more than we can really wrap our minds around. But yet, God, we wouldn't want an unjust God. We wouldn't want a God that didn't ultimately punish what was wrong. We dream of having a, 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 the, the things of this world righted and, and having things put in order and, and, and people get what they have coming to them because of the horrible things we see in the world. And, and there will come a day, Father, where you will do that. You will bring that to pass. And it, it's so overwhelming, it's hard for us to understand. But, Father, we are, are thankful for you. And we praise you and we give you the glory for it all. And, Father, as we move forward today into the, the service to follow, we give you the glory. And we pray that the offering of our praise today would be a beautiful thing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Yes.